Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana, and I'm excited tonight because our guest tonight is Eve Spangler, who's a sociologist, a human and civil rights activist. And for the last decade, her work has focused on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And she argues that human rights are the neglected standards that could lead to a just and sustainable solution. I believe she's at Boston College. She'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. But uh, anyways, how are you doing this evening, Eve? Well, thanks, Keith. I'm very happy to be with you. And yes, I'm at Boston College, um, which is a wonderful place to be doing human rights work. Um, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Wonderful, and, and this is, should be an exciting show. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested. I know the Israel-Palestine conflict is one that I think a lot of people kind of have a hard time grasping you know, what's really go- going on, and some of that I think yeah. is the fault of our, our our own national media here, which I think doesn't always provide a particularly... Um, balanced or comprehensive look at the conflict. So I think that's definitely part of the problem. But we'll get into that here, I'm sure. Um, And um, one thing I guess we could start out with, um, just even kind of from your family background, I think we could point out that both your parents were Holocaust survivors um, committed to social justice. But um, but they didn't, uh, as a general rule, they didn't talk about Israel much. Uh, why didn't they talk about Israel as a general rule? Well, uh, let me, yes, let me try it this way. Um, they, I think there are at least two major pathways from the Holocaust and from that experience uh, to the present. And one of them, the more common one, I think, goes to Zionism. And, you know, the Jews were horribly mistreated and now they need a room of their own, and I don't care who's living in that room, they have to get out of the way because we need a room of our own. That's a very common response. Uh, It's probably the majority response. My folks went a different route, which was the Holocaust was perpetrated by a state. It is the most horrifying example of state-sponsored violence, and what we have to do is be very careful about states. We have to really insist on human rights standards. We have to be aware of what's going on around us. We have to hold states accountable. And so that was their path forward in life, and that's what they conveyed to me. Um, You know, I I can tell you a story here. My mom uh, was uh, involved with the socialist youth organizations in Vienna where she grew up, and through them she became the uh, the chaperone, the head chaperone, on one of the very last children's trains that was permitted to leave Nazi-occupied Austria before the war got going full steam. And so she and two other young women took 27 kids with forged papers across Nazi Germany and safely to England. And uh, my mom's kind of my hero because she was the head of this children's train, and it was so dangerous and so scary, you know, and she did it. 
And uh, now I teach a course on human rights and the conflict in the fall semester, and then over winter break I take my students, I've done this for seven years now, to Israel and Palestine. And when I sat down with my mom at one point and began telling her about what we see when we go there, she got very, very quiet. She was sitting opposite me, and I could see her face kind of working and her eyebrows squunched up, and she was talking to herself. And then after a while she kind of nodded her head and got up and walked around the table and put her arms around me and gave me this big hug and said to me, so now you have a children's train too. And so that was their path. Their path was human rights. It was not Zionism. And I'm very much, I stand in that path too. Good, very good. And and um, I guess uh, in your background, I, I think in 2003 you attended almost reluctantly a panel discussion of Palestinian and Israeli academics. And after the Palestinian historian had outlined the history of the Nakba, uh, which is the expulsion of Palestinians during the creation of the State of Israel. Um, at that point, yep. you were somewhat skeptical. You thought to yourself, hmm, okay, well, let's hear what the Israeli professor has to say. Uh, then what happened? Well, <laughs> the university functioned there as as universities should. Uh, the uh, Israeli professor got up and went to the podium, and he pointed to the Palestinian professor and said, what he said is true, only the full truth is much worse. Uh, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, how have I not known about this? And uh, it, it happened, this was a, a talk in October of 2003. Uh, I had a new colleague who joined the uh, faculty at the university in September, and I was going to go home that night and read my book club novel and drink a glass of wine. And she came to my office and said, you have to come to this event. It's the first event I'm sponsoring, and I'm afraid nobody will show up. We did, in fact, have a wonderful audience. But after the event, I thought, okay, now I get my book club novel and my glass of wine. And she showed up at my side and said, our department is hosting them. You have to come to dinner with them. So my book club novel receded further into the distance. But I... um, I did go to dinner with them, and I remember one at one point in the middle of the conversation, the Palestinian academic saying to me, you really don't know anything about the Middle East, do you? Which, alas, was all too true. But I got intrigued, and which is what is supposed to be possible in a university. I started reading. Uh, I thought, well, you know, this is not just a private uh, interest of mine. Now I'm going to write a course, and then I, I was by then going there and seeing for myself what was going on. I thought, you know, it's, it adds so much to go there. So I designed the course to have this winter break trip uh, where I take all the students in the class. And then in the spring, I asked them all to construct some kind of project in which they put what they've learned back into the world in some way, uh, hopefully mostly to try to get more Americans interested in what would be a just and sustainable resolution of this conflict. So um, so the university really worked as a place where you can get curious about something and follow your nose, um, which was lovely. You know, and I think everything you do in life is partly fate and partly circumstance and coincidence. I mean, at that moment in my life, I was just wrapping up one big project and looking for the next project. Perhaps if this had happened a year before or a year later, it would have had a different outcome, but anyway, I got hooked. I see, yeah. And and as a public sociologist who has devoted 
um, your career to social justice issues. Um, why did it take you so long to embrace the struggle for human rights for Palestinians? Oh, ouch. <laughs> That's a tough <laughs> question. Uh, I think, uh, it, you know, and there, there are many dimensions uh, to the answer, but I think because my parents weren't Zionists, Somehow the whole Middle East was not very prominent on my radar. From high school on, I was involved in the civil rights movement and the school boycotts uh, organized by the Reverend Milton Galamison in the New York City public schools way back in the early 60s and 64. Um, and I got involved in the women's movement and the green movement and the anti-war movement, particularly Vietnam-focused. So it's not as though there's not a, a pretty big menu of things to pay attention to. Sure. But Absolutely. part of you know, part of the reason is that I intuitively and from the very beginning found Zionism to be backward looking and it didn't make much sense to me. I mean, this is not an answer about Palestinians, but it was an answer even not knowing about Palestinians and that uh particular critique of Zionism it didn't it it was a kind of backward looking 19th century vision of nationalism is about an ethno religiously pure exclusive place and it didn't seem to me to be facing into any of the things we really need to be thinking about in the 21st century which for me are multiculturalism how in a world organized in nation states you do multiculturalism decently and uh, and profoundly, not just the superficial stuff of, you know, listen to this and that kind of music and eat this and that kind of food, but really preserve and protect different life ways. And the other big issue of the 21st century, I think, is sustainability, environmental sustainability. How do we have a good life without shutting down the possibility of our great-grandchildren also having a good life? Zionism didn't speak to any of that as far as I could tell. And so it, it just didn't interest me very much. Um, again, if I could tell you a story, my my folks being immigrants and refugees uh, taught themselves English, My fa- in my father's case, out of the New York Times. So when I got to kindergarten, I was probably the geekiest little kid in the history of the world. I got to kindergarten saying things like the Dow Jones average closed down in brisk trading. And so, um, you know, we sat down to dinner every night at 6 o'clock and we listened to WQXR, the radio station of the New York Times, and we listened to the international uh, and national news and then we turned it off and then we talked about the events of the day. And so the earliest memory I have of of thinking about Israel at all must have been 56 uh, when the Brits and the French and the Israelis invaded Egypt, the Suez Canal crisis. And I do remember saying to my father, Daddy, if everybody hates Jews as much as Auntie Sylvia says they do, why would you want to put them all in one place? And I don't remember what my dad answered, but I do remember that, you know, the subject just never came up around the dinner table very much. So... You know, the Zionism didn't have the lure for me the, or the allure for me that it has for many Jews uh, of being, you know, the safe space, the, the room of one's own. And, of course, you know, we all know the Holocaust didn't only kill Jews. It, it killed gay people. It killed Romani people. It killed, you know, anybody who was a political dissident. It killed Catholics. And, you know, all of them aren't demanding a room of their own. So it was really late in the game that I began to understand 
the issue wasn't only that Zionism felt to me like a very unappealing project of Jewish self-ghettoization, but that it was doing it at the expense of the other people who were in that room, the Palestinians. You know, and then when I began to realize that, and I, I have to say Boston College played a very lovely role in this too because they do a lot of faculty development, which is not just about publish more, publish more, publish more, which is what most universities do. Right. They take their sort of Catholic Jesuit social justice stuff seriously, and so they periodically ask us, how are you serving the world? What is it you're doing that's important? And I began thinking, you know, I'm tenured, I'm safe, uh, I have the opportunity, and Israel keeps telling me that it's speaking in my name, that it's speaking on behalf of all Jews. My country is contributing unlimited military, financial, diplomatic support to this enterprise. I'm called here to find out something about it and to speak to it. So... That's a very long answer, uh, but I came to this very late, much later than other people. Sure. And um, one thing with with uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, there's so much information out there and misinformation as well. And with material mm-hmm. as contentious as that is, how how do you distinguish the facts from the myths, from the exaggerations, and, and in some cases from the outright propaganda? Well. In in a sense, um, if you look at kind of legitimate, heavy, they're not always the most readable, but legitimate scholarly sources, this is a good time to be trying to make sense of things because, uh, you know, the Israeli state was established in 48. It uh, conquered the rest of the land that it wanted to take in 67 with the occupation. And so because it wishes to be accepted by Western countries as a Western country, uh, Theodore Herzl said that uh, Israel would be the ramparts of Europe and Asia, the ramparts of civilization against barbarism. That would be just an unpleasantly racist remark from long ago if it weren't for the fact that, you know, Ehud Barak, who's a former prime minister and, and defense minister in Israel, says pretty much the same thing when he says Israel is the villa in the jungle. Um, but In any case, because Israel wants to be seen as a Western nation, its archives are open. You know, not completely. No country completely opens its archives. But substantially, the archives are open. And so now we're in an era where any competent historian, Palestinian, Israeli, American, European, they really are all working from the same information, which is that the creation of the State of Israel involved a massive attempt at expelling all Palestinians, ethnically cleansing that land of Palestinians. And it succeeded to the degree that it, you know, the most conservative estimate is it expelled half and the more common ones are two-thirds of Palestinians from the land that Israel came to control in 48, um, and that it demolished about three-quarters of all the villages that it controlled in areas that, that it controlled in virtually all the cities. And so the the hope of a Jewish future was founded on the ruins of Palestinian rights. Um, And actually, people don't, competent historians don't dispute those facts. I'm not talking about people who are flat earthers, but competent historians don't dispute those facts. So the disputes now are about what to do with that information um, and how to understand the present 
situation that uh, is, you know, the the end game of the occupation that began in 67. So, I, you know, in some ways, I don't think it is so difficult to establish a factual base. I think you also, of course, do what everybody does commonsensically. You check what people say, and then you check what they do, and you see whether the words and the music go together. Um, and so, for example, um, you hear a lot of Palestinians, diplomats, ordinary people, whenever they're interviewed, saying very carefully, we don't have a problem with Jewish people. We have a problem with Zionism. We have no problem with Jews who come as our friends, as our neighbors. We know that there are Jews from around the world, and even Israeli Jews who come to our demonstrations and stand in solidarity with us. We're very grateful to them. We have a problem with people who come to take over our homes, who say we have to get out of our old homes, you know, so they can have that room of their own. So I look when I'm there to see whether that's true, whether people are doing what they say they're doing. And sure enough, it turns out um, there's a city, Nablus, in the West Bank, northern West Bank. It's known for being quite militant against the occupation. And you go there and you can find people really denouncing Zionism. But in the middle of Nablus, there is a community of Jews who live there, completely unmolested. They're called Samaritans. The Israeli state regards them as being Jewish. It gives them Israeli passports. It gives them, although they're born in the West Bank, it gives them Israeli driver's licenses and passes to go anywhere through the checkpoints. Uh, Their worship practice is Jewish. It's Old Testament. They walk around in robes and big hats and sidelocks. They are visibly Jewish. And, you know, I ask folks in Nablus, well, what about those guys across the street? And they look at me in horror and they say, they're our neighbors. What are you talking about? They've been here forever. Those are Arab Jews. They come as our neighbors. They don't come as our conquerors. We have no problem with them. And indeed, they appear not to because we also go and visit the Samaritan community. And they voice no complaints about being harassed by their Palestinian neighbors. So, you know, commonsensically, you want the words and the music to go together, and uh, and you you can double-check that. Um, so I, I think sense can be made of it, and I worked very hard in my book. I wrote the book really for people who know this is an important subject but are a little nervous about it, know that it's contentious, feel like they don't have a solid place to plant their feet, And that's exactly the audience, whether it's in a church group or on a campus or even over the dinner table, that's who my readers are, I hope, or will be. The book's only been out a month. Yeah, and hopefully it'll reach those people and maybe change the nature or shift the discussion a little bit in the direction that it needs to go. (laughs) Everything, you know, everything written well, moves, you know, as another piece of literature on the right side of the issue. Or, um, I yeah, guess. I, I hope so. I hope so. You know, really the best way is to go and see for yourself, uh, which is why I take my students. And, you know, there is, I mean, there's a lot of Holy Land tourism in which, you know, you might as well go to Disney World for all that you're going to see that's authentic. But there is also uh, solidarity tourism and political tourism uh, we work with a group called the Siraj Peace Center. Uh, they, you know, arrange all the buses and itinerary in consultation with me. And, you know, you can go there and they'll take you and you can see it for yourself. It's, uh, 
you really only have to see it once, you know. Um, uh, let me give you an example. We go to Hebron, which is even more militant than Nablus. It's probably the most contentious place in the West Bank. And if you follow the news closely, a lot of the arrests, a lot of the incidents are in the Hebron Hill area. So we go to Hebron, and we go to the Tomb of Rachel, which is also the Ibrahimi Mosque. And um, when we're done there, we walk down a little hill, and we turn right, and there's a very wide street there with a checkpoint uh, and an Israeli soldier standing guard. And that street is divided by concrete dividers. There's a real narrow part of the street, maybe less than a quarter of the street, and a wide part of the street. On the narrow side of the street... Palestinians have to walk there. Even if they live on that street, even if, you know, they own a car, they're not allowed to drive a car in in Hebron, and they have to walk on the narrow side of the street. On the wide side of the street, the Israeli settlers, who are illegal because the whole settlement enterprise is illegal, uh, the Israeli settlers who live in Hebron, uh, who are the real religious fanatics, they're allowed to walk and drive their car, and they walk in bunches with guns slung over their shoulder. So this one year, it was the third trip, we were there, and this little Palestinian boy, he was mm, no more than four or five, little kid, he insinuated himself into his group, into our group, as we were walking down the wide side of that block, and he was trying to sell us trinkets. In Hebron, what has happened, in most of uh, Palestinian cities, the settlements are built to surround the cities and sort of crush in on them. But in Hebron, what the settlers have also done is to string a a whole series of like little mini-settlements through the middle of the city. So now the whole middle of the city is closed off from Palestinians uh, and is reserved for the settlers. Uh, And so because of that, so many stores are closed, so many families are desperate for income. This little boy selling us trinkets wasn't there to earn his little ice cream money. He was supporting his family. So um, we were walking with him and chatting with him, and we come to the end of the divided street, and we just walked on, not realizing that as we walked away, here's this little Palestinian boy suddenly exposed on the wrong side of the street, the Jewish side of the street. And I'm using the term Jewish here advisedly because the Israelis don't refer to that as the Israeli side of the street because 20% of Israeli citizens are Palestinian, and they wouldn't be allowed there either. It's the Jewish side of the street. So we've walked a few steps down the next block, and all of a sudden we hear this little boy just shriek. So we all just stop in our tracks and turn around and look back, and he's run into a doorway. He's howling in fear. He's got his hands up over his head. And from out of nowhere have come two Israeli soldiers converging on him, and they've got their guns raised like they're going to smash him with their gun butts. And my students just took one look at each other, and they all walked back. They were really smart. They did not get between the soldier and the little boy, but they formed a semicircle around the soldiers, and they just stared at them, and then they raised their cameras, and they just stood there with their cameras ready. And these soldiers looked at us, and they looked again, and we weren't going anywhere and then they just put their guns down and motioned to the kid to run off, and then we just surrounded him and walked him home. So, you know, you only have to see that once. You only have to see once a street with concrete dividers, Jews on this side, Palestinians on that side. 
I've seen it now so often that I like to get ahead of my group when they come to that place because I want to watch their faces, particularly the African-American students seeing this for the first time. So really my advice to people who wonder about what is the reality is go and see for yourself. Yeah, and that, I mean, just uh, just explaining it, I mean, the stark imagery there is, I think, um, seeing is believing. I mean, being there would, would certainly have an impact, I'm sure. And um, uh, I know uh, Jimmy Carter met a firestorm of criticism when he, when he likened the Israeli occupation to apartheid. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, less than a decade after the initial reaction, apartheid has become a common framework for describing Israeli-Palestinian relations. Um, what are the, uh, the limits of that analogy? Well, I think the analogy is okay for purely descriptive purposes. That is, of course, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, it derives from the South African word that means apartness. And, you know, the the thing about Zionism is that it, you know, it, it's a project that wants to build an ethno-religiously exclusive state in Palestine, in all of Palestine. And so it wants three things which are not compatible, okay? It wants to be Jewish, it wants to be democratic, that's the European heritage, and it wants to have all of the land. Well, you know, you can have any two of those three, uh, but you can't have all three together unless you completely ethnically cleanse it of Palestinians. Some of the combinations are less toxic than others. If you want to be Jewish and democratic, then you would have to withdraw to uh, the officially recognized Green Line, right? Then you could be Jewish and democratic in an area which is supermajority Jewish, 80% Jewish, uh, and you could get on with it. But the Israeli government has made it very clear that they're not going back to the Green Line. They've supported and funded 700,000 settlers gobbling up the West Bank as fast as they can. You could also be democratic and free to move around all the land as long as the Palestinians who live there were also free to move around all the land. And that would be the single democratic state, which the Israelis also say they don't want. So what they are doing on a kind of daily basis is they're being Jewish and having all the land. But half the people under the control of their state are not Jewish. And so how can you be Jewish and democratic if half of the people around you are not Jews and don't share those practices and don't share those beliefs? So they've established a system in which descriptively you can call it apartheid. There are different systems of law for different people based on their ethno-religious identity. So if you're a Jewish citizen of Israel, you have full civil uh, and human rights. You vote, you marry, you move around as you please, you have a good health care system, you go to school, and that's subsidized. You get you serve in the army and you get veterans' preferences for jobs for the rest of your life. So you have a, a kind of Western package of rights. If you are a Palestinian citizen of Israel, and in 48 they did not, in fact, succeed in expelling every Palestinian within their domain, so now 20% of Israeli citizens are Palestinian, well, they have an inferior set of rights, a very distinctively inferior set of rights. They do have citizenship. They can carry passports. They can vote. They can even be elected to the Knesset. They can go to the health care system. But pretty much everything else they don't get. They 
cannot have family unification. So if a Palestinian citizen of Israel, for example, comes to Boston College, falls in love with a Palestinian citizen from the West Bank, wants to marry them, wants to bring them home to mom and dad, they're not allowed to do that. The Israeli Supreme Court has ruled that to allow Palestinian citizens of Israel to bring their families into Israel is to commit national suicide. That's what the Supreme Court has said. So they're Palestinian citizens of Israel. They have inferior rights. Then there are Jerusalemites, Palestinians in East Jerusalem. They have no rights at all, including the right to live in their own homes. They have residency permits. And then we have Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. They're governed by Israeli military law that produces a 99% conviction rate. So that's not very good odds. And right now, this present Israeli government has put in charge of the West Bank a guy named Rabbi Eli Ben-Dahan, and he has said publicly on more than one occasion that Palestinians are subhuman beasts. And he's in charge of the lives of two and a half million Palestinians who have no rights and who face military law. Now, you know, people, of course, have been very outraged by the racism of that remark, and rightly so, but I think they actually have missed the main point. This guy is a rabbi, and he knows that Jewish ethics and Jewish teachings and Jewish theology require the equal treatment of all human beings. And he probably, in some very perverse way, even takes his religious identity seriously. And so what do you do when you're faced with that contradiction? I have to treat you as an equal, but you're not Jewish, and I don't want to treat you as an equal. I want you to go away. Well, then, if I think of you as not human at all, then that burden is lifted from my shoulders. So, you know, the apartheid analogy has a lot of, I think, descriptive value. Uh, I don't think it's analytic. It doesn't tell you, well, why is all this happening? What's driving it? And I think their ethnic cleansing is really a better uh, analogy. Apartheid in South Africa was meant to control black labor. It wasn't meant to expel it necessarily. It was meant to use it and control it on very oppressive terms, of course, but it was meant to control it. Whereas Israelis really would like to expel Palestinians. They would like to ethnically cleanse. And since, you know, it's very bad press, it's not good optics today to just round up people in cattle trucks and drive them across the border and dump them. The way they do that is to set up a a maze of regulations that make it impossible for people to, you know, lead a normal life that will motivate them to leave. And, you know, there's a Palestinian social scientist who calls this sociocide. You know, I think it's kind of intuitively clear. You you don't kill bodies, but you kill the, the community. You kill the social life of the society so that people will want to leave. Yeah, I, I see how that um, certainly would would have an impact. And, and I, I guess I don't know where they'd expect they want to make it unpleasant enough so they leave um, yeah. regardless. Yeah, well, there's of, a... So. Yeah, there's a Palestinian diaspora, so... Many, many Palestinians have relatives in the United States. Uh, there's sure. a huge Christian Palestinian community in the United States, in Detroit, uh, among other places, and all over Europe. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there are refugees, and, and they're all over the world. Again, let me give you an example of this. Is, you can see this if you go there. Um, in the 
first year of the trip, we went to a little town called Alwalaja, and it is um, it's really a neighborhood in in Bethlehem. They call it a town, but it's what we would mean by a neighborhood. And it's always been associated with Bethlehem. If you get in a bus or a car from the middle of Alwalaja to Manger Square and the Church of the Nativity, it's like a five-minute drive. So they consider themselves to be Bethlehem people. Well, and Bethlehem and Jerusalem are not terribly far apart. So the Israelis came along and they rezoned Alwalaja into Jerusalem. They've said, oh, you're not part of Bethlehem as of this law. Now you're part of Jerusalem. Well, you know, to an American, if the county line shifts five miles one way or five miles the other, it's probably not a tragedy. But for Palestinians to be zoned into Jerusalem means that the government has to issue you a Jerusalem residency permit or else you're illegal. So the first time we went there, we had uh, tea in the home of a guy named Mahmoud who had just come back from detention, and he had been arrested for trespassing. How was he trespassing? He was trespassing by sitting in the living room of his own home. This was a house that his grandfather had built that his father was born in, that he was born in, that his three children were born in, but it had been rezoned into Jerusalem. He had not gotten a Jerusalem residency permit, and so he was a trespasser in his own home. The second year we came, Mahmoud was gone, but the house was still there. The third year when we came back, the house was gone. Mahmoud and his family are living in Europe. So, you know, that's just a small number of people, five people who left, but it's that kind of steady, incremental pushing, 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 making life unbearable that, um, you know, the hope is enough people will leave that someday this will all be ours. Wow. And um, if you've just joined us, um, our guest tonight is Eve Spangler. She's a sociologist and human rights activist, and we're talking about the uh, Understanding Israel-Palestine, which is also the title of her new book. It's called Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Um, and uh, one thing, I guess you mentioned that we've talked a little bit about Zionism, but um, what do you say to people who insist that in light of centuries of virulent anti-Semitism culminating in the Holocaust, of course, that the the safety of Jews everywhere depends on maintaining Israel as a Jewish homeland. What would, what's your response to that mentality or that idea? Uh, uh, my, you know, my response is seldom welcome to that uh, question. But uh, and and I want to a little bit actually challenge the question because Israel sure. holds itself out not as a Jewish homeland but as a Jewish state. And there is a difference because, uh, you know, there was a fork in the road early in the history of Zionism. Did Zionists, first of all, Zionism, Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, didn't all that much care that place had to be Palestine per se. What he wanted was to get away from the ravages of Christian anti-Semitism, very legitimate, very understandable. But he was considering Argentina, Uganda, as well as Palestine. Um, and in fact, there were already established uh, Zionist colonies in Argentina funded by French uh, philanthropists like the Baron de Hirsch. Um, 
at the time that the British in 1917 issued the Balfour Declaration and said to Herzl and his followers and the people who were lobbying on their behalf, okay, Palestine, we'll give you a piece of that. And so the, the deal was done because the British said that's the land we'll give you, not because initially Zionism insisted that it had to be Palestine, but the British thought, well, you know, there is some biblical warrant, so we'll we'll settle on that. So then, you know, the the focus became Palestine and and building the the Israeli state in Palestine. Now, early in that process, there was a, a debate within the Zionists whether they were seeking a homeland that is to add themselves into the ethnic mix that was already there, or whether they were seeking a state, and indeed an, an ethno-religiously exclusive state. That fork in the road, unfortunately, was quickly traversed in favor of an ethno-religiously exclusive state. But there was that strand in Zionism, it's sometimes called cultural Zionism, that perhaps even could be revived. And it, its advocates were people like Martin Buber, and Hannah Arendt, Martin Buba said that excessive nationalism can lead only to, quote, a tiny state of Jews, completely militarized and unsustainable. Pretty smart guy, that Martin Buber. Yeah. Hannah, Arendt, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> you know, Hannah Arendt said a Jewish homeland should never be sacrificed to, quote, the pseudo-sovereignty of a Jewish state built on Arab suppression. Pretty smart lady, that Anna Arendt. So, you know, there was this debate, but pretty quickly the people who said it has to be an ethno-religiously exclusive state won out and then acted according to their plan. They formed militias. They they bought land wherever they could, to be fair. But they also bought, you know, created militias and then began expelling and, and robbing and oppressing Palestinians as quickly as they could. And even in 47, when the UN voted to partition uh, mandatory Pal- British Mandate Palestine into a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who then became the first prime minister of Israel, was strategic enough to see that even though he wasn't being offered the whole he was being offered a base from which he could operate. And in fact, the partition plan embedded in Resolution 181 was really bizarre. It was a checkerboard where to get from northern Israel to southern Israel, you had to get to Pal- through Palestine. To get from western Palestine to eastern Palestine, you had to get through Israel. So maybe the UN even had in mind to set it up so as to create an incentive for people to work together they did require that it be open borders. They required that it be an economic union, none of which is met by, you know, n- none of those terms were met or ever were met by the Israeli state. But Ben-Gurion wrote to his son Amos in a letter, I'm certain we will be able to settle in all the other parts of the country, other parts being not the ones allocated to the Israeli state by the UN, whether through agreement with our Arab neighbors or in another way. I say erect a Jewish state at once, even if not in the whole of the land. The rest will come in the course of time. It will come. It must come. So there you have a pretty clear statement that we're using the land we've been given as a staging area and we're we're going to keep coming at you. Now, nothing in that story sounds to me like it's going to make Jews safer. And, you know, anecdotally, I I have a cousin who is um, very much a Zionist, and when her daughter got married and 
went on our honeymoon to go hiking in the Alps, you know, her mother was ecstatic and said to her, you know, enjoy the pure air, take lots of pretty pictures, make me a beautiful grandbaby, go and be happy. When her son got married and went scuba diving with his new wife in Eilat in Israel, she sat by the phone for two weeks waiting to hear about a, a bomb going off. So, you know, as militant and vociferous and sometimes bullying as American Jewish public opinion is, they don't think that Israel is a safe place for Jews. Israel is the least safe place in the world to be a Jew. Um, so, you know, the argument, I, I'm very uh, sympathetic to the argu- anybody's argument for safety. You know, not only did my parents survive the Holocaust and my uncles who were in concentration camps survive the Holocaust, my grandmother didn't. And, you know, so the, the concern about safety and about community, that that's a very legitimate concern. But Zionism is not a terrifically good plan for safety and community. Uh, there are other ways to have safety and community. So, you know, that that's sort of where I'm coming from when people say, but what about Jewish survival and what about Jewish safety? And there are other more specific points as well. I mean, the Israeli state itself puts Jews in very risky positions. So it works, for example, with the most militant fundamentalist settlers, the hilltop youth. And what they do is they get into a caravan, a motorhome, and they go out way beyond even where the settlements are now, and they take a hilltop or an aquifer, and they just squat there. And then within 48 hours, the Israeli army is there guarding them. Fences are being built. They're being connected to the electricity grid. They're being connected to the water supplies. And then they become the new perimeter of the settlement, and then settlers come in and backfill between the established settlement and the outposts. And that's often how settlements grow. Now, those people very willingly put themselves in danger, and the Israeli state uses them. But, you know, this is not about safety. This is about taking the land, because that's not a very safe way uh, to proceed. So, uh, you know, that's a way in which safety is also undermined. And, you know, most important, these are things that I think many other people have pointed out the thing I haven't heard anybody else say is the settlements are deeply illegal. And in pursuing the settlement strategy, Israel is doing its best to shred the Geneva Conventions on the Rules of War uh, because the Geneva Conventions are unambiguously clear. You cannot change the size of your nation through acts of war and acts of aggression. Uh, Article 49, paragraph 6 says, The occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of its own uh, citizens to parts of its own civilian population to the land it occupies. So every single settler, every one of the 700,000 settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem are illegal. And undermine the Geneva Conventions, Article, uh, paragraph 1 of Article 49 says you can't expel civilians of the occupied population from the occupied territory. Now, there are 7 billion people in the world. Of that 7 billion, only 13 million are Jews, and more than half choose not to live in Israel. So now we're down to 6 million Jews. Are they really making themselves safer by shredding international humanitarian law? 
and by saying we're going to govern by being the schoolyard bully, no law applies to us. Is that smart? Um, I don't think so. So, uh, you know, I I am very concerned uh, not just about Jewish safety but about Palestinian safety. Uh, and, you know, I don't see that Israel is making itself safe. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah. One thing, when I first was introduced to the Israel-Palestine conflict, I think uh, one of the early positions I took was sort of for the two-state solution. That seemed mm-hmm. to be the, the well, reasonable people or people who weren't, um, you know, viciously anti-Arab or something thought was a good idea. But I think in your book you talk more about a one-state solution that, that yeah. you advocate. What would that look like? I mean, well, flesh that out for us so we understand the difference there. Uh, sure. Well, the you know, so let's start this way. Israel and Palestine together are a little bit larger than the size of New Jersey. So when you're talking about two states, you're talking about two microstates. You're talking about, you know, South New Jersey and North New Jersey. Um, and, you know, if the real issues of the 21st century are multiculturalism and sustainability, we need states, among other things, that can stand up to the WTO, that can stand up to the IMF. You don't necessarily want to create a world of statelets, each little tribelet, its little statelet. That's called balkanization, right. and most people yeah, think balkanization is <laughs> not such a terrifically good idea. Uh, so the two-state solution was devised, you know, first by Balfour in 1917 and then reaffirmed by the Peel Commission in 36, and then by the UN in Resolution 181 in 1947-48. And, you know, had the Israelis complied with the terms of the two-state thing that was laid out in in, uh, Resolution 181, you know, you could... You could quibble, and if you care about Palestinian rights, that's a pretty big quibble. Hold on a second. This was our place, and now because Europe didn't save the Jews and Europe was anti-Semitic for centuries, which, by the way, Muslim society was much less so. You know, if you were a Jew through the whole Middle Ages and you had a choice of Poland or Lebanon, you would have been very silly not to go to Lebanon. Um, You know, why are we being made to pay the price for the Holocaust you know, we don't think it's fair that you've divided this up 44% for the indigenous population and 55% for these folks who didn't get here until 1890. But let's say that was, you know, the UN. It's the best bet we have for an international order. It could have been a done deal. But, of course, that didn't happen. Um, And it didn't happen partly because the Israelis continued to appropriate Palestinian land, partly because the Arab countries surrounding this didn't sit still for that and tried to push back and 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 hold the land that was supposed to be Palestine didn't succeed in doing that so but neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians ever really wanted to divide the land i mean each of them wanted the whole land and they want, they wanted it preferably without each other's presence but they wanted the whole land so this two state solution is a western invention um and as i say it it might have been able to work. It might be considered now a fait accompli had it been complied with in in 48, but it wasn't. And now we have a situation where uh, Israel has 
taken 78% of Palestine inside the Green Line. And now of the 22% that's left in the West Bank and Gaza, the UN estimates that Gaza will be uninhabitable by human beings by the year 2020. Um, the Israelis have bombed not only human beings and, and homes, but the sewage treatment plants, the hospitals, the schools, um, the electric generating plant. And so you have two, almost 2 million Palestinians trapped in Gaza with their raw sewage running into the Mediterranean. 2 million people, all that sewage going into the Mediterranean. It's a bathtub. It's going to show up on everybody else's beaches, too. Um, you know, and in the West Bank, uh, the disastrous uh, so-called peace accords of Oslo divided the West Bank into three areas. Area C is 60% of the West Bank, and it has been almost entirely depopulated of Palestinians. It's where the settlements are concentrated. So now you have 40% of 22% of historic Palestine that's left for a Palestinian country. And that, if you do the math, that comes out to about 10% uh, of of what remains of, of Palestine. And that 10% isn't even contiguous, and it has no border with a friendly country. The 10% is a series of areas that are comparable, perhaps, to Indian reservations. Uh, they're overcrowded cities and their surrounding suburbs uh, discontinuous, not contiguous, not running one into the other, but just little enclaves that are completely surrounded by Israeli settlements and Israeli-only roads. So, you know, my sense is, I think in 1967 it made sense to talk about a two-state solution. I'm not sure that in 2015 it does. I don't think, and, and this is by Israeli choice. I mean, it's the Israelis who are building settlements on Palestinian land. The Palestinians are not building settlements on Israeli land. So I, I don't think there is a two-state solution left. So how would a one-state solution work? I always find it sort of a, a tribute to Israeli propaganda that it seems even a puzzling question to Americans. We're sitting in the middle of a multicultural democracy God knows we don't do race and ethnicity justice perfectly at all in this country. But, you know, we are trying, and we are a multi-ethnic, multiracial, multicultural, more or less democratic society. And so why it seems so bizarre and beyond the pale to expect Israel to do the same, you know, I think is a tribute to Israeli propaganda, you know, South Africa has become a multiracial democracy. It also, God knows, is far from perfect, but it's not a bloodbath. So, you know, you would have, you you could have all kinds of binationalism or trinationalism. You could have a, a one-man, one-vote situation, but you could embed in law the rights not only of individuals but of cultural and religious communities to pursue their faith, to hold land in ways consistent with their culture, to marry people, to bury people in ways that are consistent with their culture, to educate their children if they wish in ways that are consistent with their culture. That wouldn't be so terribly hard to do with the will to do it. What is lacking is the will to do it and and the desperate holding on on the part of Israelis to the desire for an ethno-religiously exclusive state. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think I think 
I mean, you know, there are so many examples of multicultural democracies that at least function, like you said, that most of them have a lot of, they have unresolved things that need to be taken care of, but, but certainly it's preferable to trying to have a, uh, <laughs> uh, ethnic, ethnic cleansing is certainly a worse worse approach than, than the approaches that South Africa and the United States have attempted, where at least there's some attempt to believe in multicultural democracy and in, in including everyone. And, yeah. Um, I know history is full of, of what are seemingly intractable conflicts, um, but they often do come to an end somewhat surprisingly. You know, I think of, mm-hmm. you know, things like the Berlin Wall just falling in the late 80s or, or you know, right. apartheid, a good example, too. I mean, I wouldn't have imagined during the mid '80s that that 10 or 15 years later that uh, South Africa would become a, a democracy and that you know yeah. majority rule or, or you know so um, and those yeah. things got settled. What giant shift in perspective do you think might help this conflict? Well, oh, thank you. This you know enables us to wrap up on on a note of hope. I think you know first of all. Human, one, the, the one thing we got to acknowledge if we go to a human rights perspective is that we're not in charge of the world and we probably don't get to tell either the Israelis or the Palestinians what to do. But we can absolutely tell our government what to do. And what I'm hoping, you know, that campuses and churches and labor unions and, you know, retired citizens and, and I don't know what, bull riders um, will be telling their representatives and their senators when they come home on break is that we want human rights to be the standard by which the United States conducts itself vis-a-vis this conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Because at the moment, we have taken uh, this Zionist version of, you know, Jewish safety depends on the the state of Israel never being questioned, never being challenged, getting all of our tax dollars and doing what it wants with them. Um, We've we've accepted that premise. Clinton accepted that premise during the Oslo negotiations that the standards were not human rights. The standards were what Israel demanded in the name of its own safety. That has to change. And, you know, we have so many tools available on our campuses and in our churches to change it. We can educate ourselves, whether through tourism or through reading books or, you know, watching stuff on on Google and on YouTube. We have laws on the books like the Arms Export Control Act, which, you know, suggests that we shouldn't be selling offensive weapons uh, to Israel. We shouldn't be rearming them in the middle of Operation uh, Protective Edge, in which they killed 2,200 people in three weeks, 70% 70% of them by Amnesty International estimates, civilians, 500 of them children, um, not permitted to even rebuild from the rubble so that most of them are now living, you know, in bombed out houses with no ro- literally no roofs over their heads. And your tax dollars and mine, to the tune of $10 billion a year, are supporting that. Well, you know, that's something we in America can do something about. Um, and we can educate ourselves, we can uh, listen to the boycott movement, we can ask for law reform. Um, so we we have a lot of opportunities. Now, I do have to say, though, I mean, I very much <laughs> want to conclude on the note of hope and of saying there are many things we can do. And I think the hope 
is real. It's not just, you know, uh, Hallmark cards. It's, it's got legs because we do have tools. And, and in fact, American opinion is changing perceptibly in our churches and on our campuses. Um, and we also have partners over there among Israelis and among Palestinians. In fact, apart from their horrible politicians, and this to me is the irony, Israeli and Palestinian culture are actually quite compatible if you could just mute the fear-mongering for a minute. Both cultures are ferociously committed to education. Palestinians have the highest literacy rates, the highest per capita PhDs of any Arab population. Uh, Both cultures are extremely entrepreneurial. Palestinian economy uh, had a favorable balance of trade with Europe for 100 years before Zionism came on the scene. So we have tools and we have partners. Um, The one blind spot, I think, in the American solidarity movement is the defense budget and the, the amount of money, the $3 billion a year, that we give Israel in weapons spending because that money never leaves America. What we do is we give a credit card uh, for $3 billion to Israel to buy American weapons, and that's our jobs policy. That's manufacturing in the United States. And so the peace movement you know, has to develop an economic plan for what's sometimes called conversion economics for how you demilitarize American, the American economy without crashing it. You know, what you do with those jobs and defense spending if you don't become the armor of the world, if you obey your own rules and only sell weapons that can be used defensively to protect people, not to aggress against their neighbors. So that's a, a missing part of our toolkit um, that, you know, I think the American left has been talking about for a long time, but not getting much traction on. But I I do think that we have tools and we have partners. You know, I know so many, both Israeli and Palestinian people, some of whom are working only in their own communities, some of whom are working cross-border with the other side to think about what would water rights look like in in a democratic state, what would land policy have to be in a democratic state, how would you provide for returns of refugees without crashing the new economy? All of that is going forward. People aren't just sitting on their thumbs, you know, waiting for the roof to fall in. Um, people are thinking about that, working on that, Israelis with other Israelis, Palestinians with Palestinians, and Palestinians and Israelis together. So I, I'm hoping I've sold your your audience on getting involved. You know, there are so many organizations. Every church has something about the Middle East. It is, after all, the Holy Land. Most campuses have an SJP. Get involved. Absolutely. And and uh, um, I will uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I will put some links to your page or your book on our, our website so people can access it. Is there a, a, a particular website you can recommend that people go to for more information? Uh, there are many, and I would think you would want to read both Palestinian and Israeli voices. So the Palestinian uh, newspaper Haaretz, which uh, is kind of the New York Times of, of Israel, except that it has a much wider range of opinion and debate than the New York Times does. Uh, on on the uh, Palestinian side, you could look at Ma'an News Service, 
which is a, a Palestinian Authority station. You can look at the Electronic Intifada, which is a website. You can look at American Jewish activists if you want to hear their voice. You can go to Mondo Weiss. Yes, there are a lot of sites, and I'd be happy to send them to you, and you can post them onto your website if you wish. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And once again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, a really uh, outstanding interview. Uh, I think our listeners will be pleased. Uh, so much information, so much to cover. And, you know, can't do it all in an hour, but I think given the time constraints that we had, you did an ex- excellent job of laying it out. And I hope people will will purchase your book and, and, uh, and try to learn more as well and then um, maybe get involved with their church or with other groups. And I, I know our some of our local churches here do make trips to the Holy Land, and, and I think uh, even some of them are sort of the outside the official tourist type stuff. We have a uh, UCC church here that I think tries to do some social justice work. Oh, I'm and sure. If it goes to some places that aren't that aren't just sort of um, church tourism, but are actually trying to, you know, learn more justice and actually work. make a difference or help the community. Yeah, justice work. So. Thank you again. Uh, um, it was a pleasure having you on, and, and um, best of luck in everything you do, and thank hopefully you. we find a solution here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, and good luck to you and your listeners, too. Thank you as well. And uh, everybody who's listening, uh, we hope you have a good weekend, and we'll, we'll, we'll I guess you'll hear us next week. I was going to say we'll see you next week, but I can't see you, but you'll hear us uh, <laughs> and uh, thank you again for listening, and thank you, thank you again to our guest. You have a great weekend now. Bye-bye.